Welcome, everyone, to the Talking Reef Podcast. Questions and comments are always welcome. Please send them to podcast at talkingreef.com. And don't forget to visit our website at www.talkingreef.com. Now, here's the show. Welcome to the Talking Reef Podcast, the weekly talk show that brings you topics and discussions on marine and reef aquariums. Uh, just a quick reminder to everybody that the next Midwest Marine Conference, uh, again, will be held on Saturday, March 25th, 2006, uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, make sure you go check out masm.org for all the details there. And the other conference I wanted to mention is the Saltwater U2 Conference. Uh, this is the educational program hosted by the Atlanta Reef Club, promoting preservation through education uh, through a series of lectures and workshops. This year's event is going to be held at the famous Georgia Aquarium on May sixth, seventh, and uh, May fifth, sixth, and seventh of two thousand and six. So moving right along, um, we've got a whole load of information coming your way. Uh, this is going to be an extended show if you haven't uh, seen or noticed or read already. Uh, this topic for this week is going to be on seahorses. Uh, we're going to be talking with Dave Perry. Uh, again, he's joined us to tell us all about seahorses. Uh, this is going to be specifically about uh, his experience with the hippocamp hippocampus redi seahorses. Uh, but again, uh, a lot of the information can be uh, passed on to many other species of seahorses out there. So without further ado, let's move right on to our first topic of the week. So Dave, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks. I'm glad to be back. Um, I know I've been really looking forward to doing the show. Um, it is a topic that's near and dear to my heart, and I can't wait to uh, help folks out. Yeah, it's been something, uh, you know, I've been trying to, you know, speak it up and get everybody interested in. We got some questions for the end that we'll go over at the end of the topic. Um, but to get the seahorse topic started, let's go ahead and why don't you give us all a little introduction to seahorses. This is something that, uh, well, first and foremost, I, this is going to be a big, huge learning experience for me too, because I've never done anything with seahorses. I've done a little bit of uh, research on them, but not a whole lot. So um, why don't you introduce us to seahorses and tell us a little bit about them at a high level. Sure, I'd love to. Um, well, I, I first want to start off by saying that, uh, you know, my experience with seahorses has only been in the last two, three years, if I include my research and study. And what I'm going to talk about today is my experience with um, hippocampus redi. And um, I could go into other details about other seahorses if folks are interested, but um, right now that's the species that I'm keeping. And uh, again, looking forward to talking about it. Um, you know, who, who doesn't love seahorses? They're, they're, they're great. They're amazing. They're, they're colorful. Um, they're unique in their uh, physical uh, makeup and in their behavior. Um, you know, some folks really uh, don't understand what seahorses are about and, and where they come from. I've had folks who have actually asked me if they were, in fact, real and not some mystical creature like unicorns. Yeah, you know, and uh, I, I see them at the, at the local fish store because my local fish store gets them in um, actually all the time. And they usually sell them at a really good price, too. So I'm always in there looking and, and thinking about getting them. And, you know, I know that there's so much more than just popping them into a tank. And I can't keep them into, you know, a regular community tank, which is stuff that we'll get into in a little bit. But uh, um, I do want to stress the one point that you made. Uh, that the information that we're providing in this topic is going to be specific to uh, the one species that you mentioned. And while a lot of this may apply to other species, um, you know, just kind of the disclaimer, we are going to be talking about uh, this one specifically. That, and that's correct. I, um, if Again, if folks have any interest in other species, I can point them in the right direction. Yeah, and we, we're actually going to get to some reference sites later on in the show for everybody. Um, so we've got a little introduction to seahorses. Uh, one of the, the things that I want to stress first and foremost, and not just with seahorses, but this is something that I've mentioned um, with pretty much any other type of fish or coral for that matter, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the difference between getting tank bred versus wild caught seahorses and why we all prefer uh, tank bred just like with anything else that we try to keep? Well, I mean, if you think about the differences between wild caught and tank bred, it's a no brainer. You know, we as hobbyists should always opt for tank raised fish, you know, if and when we have the opportunity to do so. 
Uh, it's just environmentally friendly, and you know, in the end, obtaining a tank-raised fish, you're really more often than not acquiring a fish that is you know, going to be a hardier fish, and overall, it's a win-win situation. Right, and there's a lot of times, um, you know, it, one of the important factors to a lot of people, while it really shouldn't be the most important factor, price is usually the big factor. And when you get a large population or a large area of people that are able to um, captively breed these, it usually makes the overall price on, on them go down. So that's that's another benefit, too. Well, th that is true. I mean, right now, hobbyists and, and tank raising seahorses uh, in, a, in a local or geographical uh, area, you know, there aren't a whole lot of folks who are doing it, but more and more folks are getting involved in breeding every day. And, yeah, there's therefore more fish available in the market, and it does, in fact, help. Yeah, and then, you know, as you mentioned, there's they're going to be hardier, um, and that pretty much applies to, um, in my experience, any type of fish and or coral. Uh, if you've got something that's tank-raised, it's used to the captive environment, it's used to the surroundings, the lighting, the filtration, the water quality, all that stuff, and uh, they'll usually be more active, you know, from a fish standpoint, they'll be more active and, and healthier overall, so... Uh, just in closing that topic, I think, uh, as with anything, we want to stress that we should always try to get tank bred. And when you're in your local fish store, uh, you should always make sure that you ask to see if it's tank bred. Um, and first and foremost, I would probably, and see if you agree with me, the first thing that we should do is look for uh, local hobbyists, either through a local club or organization, and look for somebody that might be breeding them. Absolutely. I mean, tank bred is key. Um, you know, as a final note, uh, especially as it pertains to seahorses, most folks who are, who are breeding and raising seahorse uh, will ensure that they're eating frozen and prepared foods before they're released, you know, to their uh, ultimate destination. So, right, right. you know, at, at, even at that point in time, you're, you're, you're ahead of the game. Um, but, you know, and, and they're less likely to carry, carry the parasites, diseases, and other issues that uh, you run into with, uh, with wild-caught fish. Excellent. Now... We'll kind of close up the topic, or at least that for right now. Um, there's going to be some things that we're going to touch on a little bit later versus, you know, tank bred versus wild-caught seahorses and stuff like that. But for starters, let's move into the main part. And the first and foremost is tank setup. Um, I've heard a lot of different things. Again, I am not very familiar with seahorses, and that's one of the things I was excited about doing the show. Um, one of the things that I have seen is there seems to be a lot of people that might be giving misinformation, this, that, or the other thing. Um, or just an overall lack of knowledge about the the total tank setup. So why don't you take a minute and tell us a little a little bit about, first of all, the tank. I mean, that's the first thing you're going to get when you actually decide to jump into this. So if I'm going to keep, you know, seahorses, what do I need to know about the actual aquarium before I go buy one? Well, I mean, th that that's a good question. The, fir the first thing to keep in mind is, is what species is it that you're in interested in keeping? Um, the proper tank size is really dependent upon the species. Uh, some seahorses are small enough that you could keep dozens in the same aquarium that you would only be able to keep one or two pair of the larger breeds. You know, but there, there are some standards that you want to go by. You want to make sure the tank's just right. Something that's too large will make it harder for you to feed your seahorses. They are more adapt to clinging to a, a hitching post and snicking food, um, as it's called, as it passes by them, and they don't actively chase food throughout the column. So you want to make sure that you can keep the foods concentrated. At the same time, you want to make sure that the tank's not too small. You would have problems keeping up water quality, and overall, you just wouldn't have enough room for the fish themselves. Uh, the one thing to keep in mind is tank height. Um, seahorse need tank height in order uh, to breed, and in, in order to just thrive. Uh, and the rule of thumb is uh, that you want to keep the tank height equal to three times the length of the seahorse species. For instance, again, Hippocampus redi, it, the typical size at adulthood is in and around six inches. So you would multiply by that by the three to get 18 inches. And that's the tank height you would need for them in order to be comfortable and in the end breed, and uh, you'd get to see a full life cycle of the species. Now, more importantly, uh, I've got two follow-up questions to that, or the points. The first one is, that's a tank height minus anything that you've got in there. So if you've got a 20-inch tank with four inches of live sand in it, you're not going to meet an 18-inch height. 
No, that's correct. You do want to keep in mind any uh, sand bed that you use. And quite a few folks still opt, um, as I do, to use the deep sand beds for um, denitrification purposes. And you want to keep that in mind. That, any other ornamentals that would uh, create some loss in the water column, you want to use the actual height of the water column itself. Right. Now, the next question that I had is one of the things that you mentioned and the same thing that I read everywhere else when I'm looking for and I see this type of information is see people say that they need X amount of inches in height in order for them to breed. Now, what if I have absolutely no desire to breed them? Well, again, you're looking at what's called optimal conditions. If, if the tank is set up properly and the fish are comfortable enough where they're breeding and you're seeing a full life cycle of the species, then you know you've got optimal conditions. And in my honest opinion, regardless of whether you want to breed, um, you want to keep optimal conditions for any of your fish. If you don't have any desire to breed whatsoever, well, get a tank full of females, and uh, they're just <laughs> beautiful. And uh, then you rule out the option of, of breeding right there. All right. And the main point that I wanted to bring up there is while – it's usually mentioned when, when the question is asked, people will usually respond what they need X amount of heights because they have elaborate mating rituals that involves them going up and down in the column. Well, even if you're not intended on breeding them and you just want to keep them, like you said, if you want to keep a handful of females or, you know, handful of males or whatever, regardless, tank height is still important for the overall health of this, of, of these type of fish. Yeah. And, and I believe so. I mean, if you look at their swim patterns, they tend to, you know, go up and down like a, a chart on a graph paper and a more, you know, vertical and, uh, you know, rising and falling pattern. And if you remove that water column from them and change their, their habits, well, obviously then that can, you know, cause some, some problems with, with the fish. Great. Now, um, you know, again, you, we want to try to make sure that you, you do the right amount of research on the specific species that you're keeping to make sure you got the right tank size. Needless to say, you're probably not going to want to get, you know, a 55-gallon aquarium and throw a couple dwarf seahorses in there uh, for the reasons you mentioned, feeding abilities and stuff like that. So I think we've pretty much overall covered size and shape. Is there anything else you wanted to add to that? Nope. I, again, I, I, you know, and you spoke of dwarfs, and I agree. You know, a, a colony of dwarf seahorses could do very well in, in a five-gallon or a ten-gallon tank, depending on how uh, decorative you want to make it. So right. you're, you're you're right. You need to research the species, understand their size, their their needs, and uh, create uh, create the the proper environment for them. All right. And speaking of uh, decorations and decorative that you want to put into there, what other types of things can actually go into a seahorse tank? Well, if you keep in mind that you want to try and replicate the natural environment, um, you would want to research and find out where that species is from. Now, most seahorses can be found on lagoons, you know, quite a few harbors and bay areas. They typically live in, in rubble zones and uh, in and around macroalgae. So when you're setting up your tank, you want to think of that. You want to provide the hitches that they find in the wild. And uh, you could, you know, use uh, live rock for that. Um, you could use uh, macroalgaes. I, I use uh, many calarpa species uh, in my tanks. If you're using live rock, think of using Tonga branch. It, it actually has a more natural structure, a hitching post for them. You could use fake corals. I, I often get them from the, uh, the, the pet stores when they're damaged, and I just cut them up and use them in pieces. But uh, you do want to pro provide plenty of hitching posts for your seahorses. Now, I also imagine that's probably important, again, um, species-specific, to make sure that you're not getting something too large or too small. There, there's probably a certain size. I mean, you're not going to want a, a three-inch thick Tonga branch in there and expect a, a tiny seahorse to be able to wrap their, their tail around that, right? That's right, yeah. If you're looking at the dwarf species, uh, the dwarf seahorses in and around uh, collected in Florida, you're, you're better off using macroalgaes. Uh, they do like uh, gorgonians, although um, some folks like to use sea grasses. Um, grasses themselves present a problem. You need a real deep sand bed to do that. But you do want to match the hitching posts, um, obviously, to the size of the fish. Yeah, and I was going to ask about gorgonians. Um, those can be used, and they're safe for as hitching posts for some of the smaller species or for any of them? 
Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, there are some some species of seahorses that host exclusively in Gorgonians, and uh, they're they're so small, and actually the patterns match their host so well that uh, it's a challenge to find them. Um, Might not make the best uh, display tank if you can't see them, but... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, but uh, we we wouldn't be keeping most of those species ourselves, but, you know, Gorgonians, you know, they, they also provide a set of challenges... Right. Uh, photosynthetic versus non, yep. and uh, you need to ensure that you can create the proper tank for them as well. Right, right. Okay, so, I mean, basically, just to recap, the other types of th- things that you can put in there, I mean, Live Rock is fine, um, specifically Tonga Branch, uh, and other types of hitching posts, uh, macroalgae. Now, in reference to other hitching posts, do you know of anything um, artificial, any type of artificial things that you could put in there as hitching posts? Is there anything that's commonly done? Sure. Well, again, you know, you can buy artificial corals from from your local pet stores, and uh, I use those. There are some folks who have used zip ties to make hitching posts for their seahorses. I like the more natural look, and I provide the uh, tonga branches, the macroalgae, even small skeletons from from corals. Mm -hmm. Uh, I sometimes get great deals from the local fish stores on some corals that they may have lost and uh, they they work as great hitches yeah a lot of those a lot of those will they'll usually just give them to you because they're dead or dying and they're just kind of taking up space in their tank anyway so right. okay cool right. um i think we you know i think that covers as far as the uh, additional items that go into the tank now at this point let's kind of move on and talk about filtration i know filtration is something that's that's often brought up because seahorses uh, they they don't like the high moving currents that we generally put in our tanks, especially to try to, you know, maintain proper filtration and stuff. So people are a little bit worried about the types of filters, types of hang on back filters. Overall, what type of filtration is used in a seahorse tank? So what can you tell me about mechanical or biological filtration to be used? Well, in my honest opinion, you want to use a, a mix of, of both. I use a, a deep sand bed plenty of live rock. Right now I'm using a six gallon uh, acrylic sump that I built, but if any of you have read my thread on the board, you also know that I'm upgrading to a newer 75 gallon sump. Yeah, boredom has set in, I guess. (laughs) Um, But, you know, as far as other biological filtration, macroalgae is is wonderful. It it fixes, you know, uh, dissolved matters, Mm -hmm. uh, reducing ammonia. That makes it easier. Any mechanical filtration, though, should be really what's considered seahorse friendly. Mm-hmm. You know, make sure there are no large intakes. You don't want to use overpowering uh, pumps uh, or any moving parts that could, could harm the fish in any ways. You Which know, also you, probably it, goes for any type of powerheads or anything you might use inside there. Oh, correct. If, you, if you're going to use powerheads within your system, and you may, uh, you should make sure that at least you use the strainers. I, I personally don't uh-huh. use the sponges. But use the strainers on on any of them, and any powerheads that you use in a system for a seahorse need not be the MaxiJet 1200s, big powerful. Uh, I use Rio 50s um, yeah. within my seahorse tank. Yeah, and the Rios uh, and um, the MaxiJets both come with the Rios have like a plastic bottom that goes on them, and the MaxiJets have a strainer piece that you can add to them. So uh, both of those come with the, the a proper with the proper equipment to make them safe you know with the maxi jets you want to go with a smaller one like you said you don't want to be pumping three four hundred gallons an hour in in a 20 gallon or 30 gallon tank right i don't i don't think i've bought a power head that didn't have a, a strainer system on it uh, just for that purpose right right so basically probably any type of standard hang on back filter uh if needed would probably work as long as it's got a a strained intake uh, most of those hang-on back filters that I know of don't really generate a whole lot of output, so they, that shouldn't cause too much of an issue there. Then your standard saltwater filtration of, you know, that at least that we talk about a lot on the show here, is your lots of live sand, lots of live rock. Uh, what about a skimmer? Lots of live rock, lots of live sand, and a skimmer. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, seahorses are quite messy. They they don't have true stomachs. Uh, they they as food passes through them quite often, it comes out uh, not fully digested. And, uh, yeah, yeah, not fully digested and in a state where it needs some filtration. Right. Um, so 
you know, skimmers, skimmers help quite a bit in, in reducing uh, some of the uh, dissolved particles in the water. And then a great cleanup crew will, will help you in the end. Okay. Now, um, regarding the acceptable water parameters for a seahorse, uh, I'm going to assume that they're probably optimally uh, kept with normal uh, saltwater tank parameters or reef tank parameters. We want to keep nitrates low, nitrites low, ammonia low, um, all that type of stuff. Is there any anything special to them, or do they have any other tolerances? Well, again, you, you need to discuss most of these issues on a species basis, mm-hmm. but, you know, for the most part, we, we do understand that seahorses, uh, seahorses prefer what we call uh, full salinity. So your specific gravity should be in and around 102.4, where you're keeping it in your reef environment. Um, but you need to keep temperatures in mind. Uh, the tropical species would like it anywhere between 75 uh, upwards to 78. And if you were talking about Hippocampus erectus, you would be talking about northern uh, species, which need low 70s for temperature. But otherwise, you do need crystal clear water. Um, and, and seahorses are a scaleless fish, so keep that in mind. Uh, levels of ammonia and uh, other irritants in the system will really affect them. So you do want to keep pristine water quality. Now, um, as being a scaleless fish, uh, I know a lot of uh, regular scaleless fish that we have in our tanks, they have a type of oily stuff that they, they excrete from their skin as a, as a protective coating. Um, do seahorses have anything like that as a protection? Well, you know, they don't have um, a, a slime coating like you'd find on a mandarin right. or, or uh, other fish, as you think of a scaleless or smooth fish. But they do, you know, they make up otherwise. They, they utilize uh, the growth of macroalgae, um, you know, cyanoalgae on their backs to, you know, help them, and it protects them from excessive light as well. Gotcha. All right. Well, moving on, uh, I think we've, we've covered the, the filtration aspect, um, skimmers, live rock, live sand. You can use hang-on-back filters uh, if you so desire. The proper amount of water current, uh, which I'm going to go into a little bit more in a second, but any powerheads that you add in there, um, all of that should have screened intakes on it so we don't you know, suck anything in. But now, in an overall general statement, at least for this species specifically, um, what's the proper amount of overall tank current? I know when we reference you know, your normal reef tank, people will say, well, for a standard reef tank, you want to push between 15 and 20 times the tank volume in an hour. If you're dealing with some of the more um, high-needing branching stony corals, you might need to push 25 or 30 tanks an hour. When we're dealing with uh, specifically this, the hippocampus redi, um, what's the type of overall current that's needed in, in a tank? Well, you're right. And, and, and that's why seahorses are often noted as reef friendly, but uh, the reef is not friendly to them. You know, seahorses cannot survive in an environment where you're talking a 20 time turnover rate of water. You know, they're used to living in lagoon areas where the flow of water is just the push and pull of waves as they, they roll overhead. Seahorse keepers typically keep their tanks at a five, six time turnover. And it depends, again, on how you've decorated your tank and, and, and the flow in your tank. But what you want to do is create a lagoon-type environment. Uh, seahorses just simply cannot live um, in a reef where waves are crashing overhead and throwing them against live rock. Right. Now that brings up a, a question. I know that one of the important reasons for keeping your your tank current and your, your volumes of turnover in an hour up so high, um, I mean, it, high I mean 10 to 15 times an hour, uh, one of the important reasons is to make sure that you're getting good flow through your live rock and water is getting moved through there for filtration. Now with tank currents this low, do you actually run into any type of filtration issues where you have to do water changes more often or... Uh, make sure that you have, a, specifically that you have a good skimmer that's working overtime all the time? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it is a low-flow environment. You want to have a skimmer that is adequate and, and pro- producing a good thick skimmate. And you want to have a good cleanup crew uh, that can help you uh, get any matter that gets stuck between the rock work. I have another Rio 50 that's set low in the tank pointing straight through the aquascaping that comes on on a timer and just turns on for 15 minutes a day to blow through there, clean stuff up, uh, allow the matter to get back into the water column and eventually mm-hmm. be filtered. 
if you look at any of the, the seahorse forums, you'll see a lot of folks with problems with hair allergy and cyano. And, you know, it, it is a problem if, if you overfeed and overlove your fish. And it's right. a problem if you don't keep up with flow and proper water changes. Yes, and there's a couple items on, on feeding and that type of stuff, which we will definitely cover a little bit later. So, yeah, I, I see how that can present an issue with the current. Um, so it's probably something where water changes probably need to be done more often. And again, we'll, we'll get into feeding and stuff like that in a little bit. The next thing that you, you kind of mentioned was about the cleanup crew. Now, when we're talking about cleanup crew, being that most, if not all, again, I'm not an expert on this, uh, of the seahorses are, they're slow moving fish. And that could possibly present uh, a challenge when you're looking at your cleanup crew. What type of, of critters can we put in as our cleanup crew that would be deemed acceptable? And what are some types that we should stay away from? Well, you're right. They are, they are slow-moving fish, and they make themselves susceptible to issues. Not all of the problems they run into are intentional um, aggravation by other tank mates. <laughs> but, you know, coupled with the fact that they also grow, often grow this nice uh, coat of algae upon their backs, that sets up a whole other set of problems. You do want a, uh, a cleanup crew, and you want to utilize some hermit crabs to help you. Most folks report that the blue-legged hermit crabs tend to be aggressive um, and want to preen seahorses, so I would stay away from them. The scarlet hermit crabs seem to be real trusted with seahorses. Uh, I try to keep away from any other hermit crabs with larger claws just because accidentally they may bite into the seahorse tails and you don't want any kind of a cut or a problem. Mm -hmm. Any seahorse with an exposed wound is susceptible to a bacterial type of an infection and uh, most often you don't even notice it until it's too late. Mm -hmm. One of our peers and good friends, Mark or Milev, as you might know him, is also dealing with the same situation with his hippocampus redi girl, uh, Casper. Uh, it's not fun to have to treat a seahorse with antibiotics after the fact, so you really do want to make sure that uh, they don't succumb to any injuries like that. Yes. Now, specifically with the cleanup crew, is there any types of shrimp that we can or can't keep, like the blood shrimp or the, scar the cleaner shrimp or peppermint shrimp? Is there anything that would be too aggressive or that would work good in a seahorse tank? Well, keep in mind that any shrimp that you use in a seahorse tank need to be sizable. I mean, mm -hmm. If they look like prey to the seahorse, they may, in fact, become prey to the seahorse. Um, I use cleaner shrimp. I use peppermint shrimp in my tank because it, it is a slow water environment, and I feared uh, aptasia uh, outbreaks. Yeah. Uh, my cleaner shrimp uh, tend to also breed with water changes, so at least once a month I tend to get a whole lot of fry. Mm -hmm. and. That's added as food. It's a bonus for the for the fish that are in the system. I'm sure that the skunk cleaners would do just as well, although they kind of get larger. Uh, but they're great at getting in and out of the rock work and picking out scraps of mice that might get stuck in there and, and overall helping clean the tank. Now, I know that uh, specifically my cleaner shrimp um, always goes nuts when, when I feed the tank and is right there feeding. Does, do they present any type of competition over food? They do, and my peppermint shrimp are actually quite large. Um, Jimmy Buffett would drool over them uh, with a <laughs> stick of butter. Uh, they, you know, they will get to a point where they can try and outcompete, but at that point in time, I, I compensate by uh, making sure I, I target feed them. Once they get their food, they crawl away and they're they're happy, and that leaves the seahorses. Uh, to their their share, which brings up you know a great point, um, which I'm sure a lot of people remember back uh, in the early days of the Talking Reef podcast. I did a, a show about um, a plate coral that I was having a problem with, and it turned out that my cleaner shrimp was stealing the food from it. And one of the end results from that was exactly that. Before I would clean or before I would uh, feed the plate coral, um, I would actually take a large piece of of raw table shrimp is usually what I feed them, um, and I. You know, I'd spot feed it to the to the cleaner shrimp, and that's exactly what what he would do. He would, he would kind of take the food and hide in a corner, and that gave you know the plate coral long long enough time to to consume the food. So that's a good point there. So one of the other things that I wanted to bring uh, or wanted to talk about, uh, oh, you know what we didn't mention um, as far as the cleanup grow cleanup crew goes. Uh, what about uh, starfish? Uh, maybe the brittle stars versus serpent stars. Well, I do use serpent stars, and, and I have in, in my reef tanks, and I have a small 
banded one in my in my seahorse tank. They too are great for getting in and out of the rock work and helping keep things clean. Serpent stars, I trust. I've never had a problem with one. Uh, the brittle stars, uh, they can get quite large, especially the green ones, and they've also been known to set up and prey on um, slower-moving fish. Uh, I've seen them in a stance try to drop on damsels and other fish as they're hunkering down for the night, and I just wouldn't feel comfortable putting them in a seahorse tank. You know, and I follow the same um, same line of thinking when dealing with my reef tank. You know, I'm not overly comfortable with the brittle stars, specifically the larger brittle stars. They seem to have a better ability to to capture fish, but... Uh, what I do have is I have two serpent stars, and since I've got them, they've actually gotten fairly fairly big uh, for a serpent star, and I have had absolutely no problem with them. They go and move in and out of my rock work and clean up everything. So uh, I like the serpent stars from a standpoint, from a reef standpoint, and from what you're saying, that they, they also do well and don't present any challenge that you know of when dealing with a, a seahorse tank. No, no, and a lot of people do use them just for that same reason. Mm -hmm. They're very beneficial part of the cleanup crew. Excellent. Now, uh, is there any other cleanup crew items that would be noteworthy? We kind of talked about uh, the hermit crabs um, to kind of try to stay away from the blue-legged hermit crabs. Uh, while that's probably not a uh, downright always true statement, it's, it, it might present um, problems in the future, so it's probably something that's just easier to just to avoid it altogether. Um, we talked about the shrimp that uh, you want to keep with, you know, smaller shrimp. Uh, if you have something in there that's going to be present uh, great competition for your for your ponies, that you might want to try to spot feed them ahead of time to keep them out of the way. Um, and then uh, again, the the serpent stars seem to be something that's okay, and a lot of people have had good luck with them. And you're probably going to want to stay away from the brittle stars or the larger brittle stars that might present a, a challenge and and try to predate on on the seahorses. Uh, is there anything else in there that you wanted to mention with the cleanup crew? Right. Well, I mean, if if you're going to talk about any marine tank, uh, how could you leave out our friends, the snails? Ah, uh, yes. And, uh, <laughs> totally and, forgot that. And in a, right. And in a slow-moving environment like a, like a, a seahorse tank, uh, the more the merrier. Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to want you're going to want snails that will assist in cleaning out your sand bed. Uh, the Nasaria snails are great for that. Yep. You're going to want uh, snails that will help you with the glass on, on film allergies and uh, any turbos yep. that you find that, that might take some of the turf allergies. Um, yeah, the more the merrier. I've not had a problem with any snails in my system. Um, I actually have a conch in one of my systems right now that helps me. Uh, I've not run into any issues with snails. Okay, cool, cool. Now, uh, one of the other things that people always are interested in is uh, what else, what other things besides crew, cleanup crew, what other types of fish and or coral can we put in a in a seahorse tank? Again, you know, different types of fish, uh, different types of coral. Uh, I'm sure each one of those topics is, is something that you can have some points on. Sure, yeah. Well, if you were talking to a purist um, and... <laughs> Uh, they may state that you want to keep seahorses in a species-only tank, and mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of merit to that. Um, but I, of course, broke the rules myself. I like to push boundaries. I always kind of have. I make sure that all the inhabitants' needs are kept in mind. But when I look at it, if you wanted to put a goby or a mandarin or a other adequate, you know, type of tank made in the system, well, why not? As long as their needs are met as well. Right, and that's an important um, thing to bring up. You don't want to go throwing a, a you know a mandarin in a tank that's two months old, and it's you know, or in a situation where there's not enough natural food for it. Uh, so, and, and with anything else, you got to pay attention to those needs also. Yeah, correct. Uh, you you want to make sure that you know anything that you set up is is providing the right kind of environment for everything within. So if you've got a seahorse tank that's kept at 78 degrees and you have uh, full salinity and you have another fish type that can live in that environment and it won't be detrimental to it, if it can thrive in that system, you know, that's what you want to try and do. The gobies are a good example. They're not aggressive eaters. They, they tend to clean the sand beds and they don't compete with the seahorses. Uh, they're small. Uh, they don't increase the bio load by a whole lot. Um, mandarins, if you can get mandarins that are in a system that's mature and can provide them the food that they need, 
if they're in fact hunting pods, that's great. Um, I was lucky enough to get one that takes frozen foods and it shares the food with the seahorses. Uh, they would they would be a great choice. Um, some folks put pipefish in. I was just going to say, uh, what about the the famous pipefish? Which uh, when you go to to forums, you usually see the the seahorses and pipefish usually you know in their own little area there, and it seems like a lot of people tend to to combine those two together. Right. Well, being from the same family, and uh, more often than not, they're found in the same environment. That that makes a lot of sense. Yep. Uh, they are sl- slow, deliberate eaters, a lot like the seahorse, and uh, they won't outcompete each other for the food as long as you're providing enough for all. Uh, and the same as, as, as a mandarin, if you watch them eat, they're very deliberate in their stocking and the way yep. they eat. Uh, what you wouldn't want to put into the tank with them are you know, aggressive damsels that would rob the water column of every piece of food before the seahorse <laughs> got a chance to yep. see it. Um, I know my my clownfish would, would clean out their tank in, in short time and leave them nothing. Yep. Uh, bang, Bangai cardinal tend to be aggressive eaters as well. Um, you might want to think about that. Um, but any other fish that may harass your seahorses, um, you know, they are a very gentle and docile species. You don't want to put something in there that's going to chase them all day long yeah and i mean there's really two main points that you, that you bring up when, when talking about other fish that you're going to keep with your seahorses uh the first thing is you don't want to put in anything that's aggressive like you mentioned damselfish um including damsels and, and clownfish stuff like that they, they'll show aggression towards them the other important thing that you bring up is even if you have a fish like your cardinals that are that may be non-aggressive towards each other, uh, but they are aggressive eaters. So you want to keep an eye on whatever type of fish you're putting in there. If it's an aggressive eater, it may not directly harm your seahorses, but in the way that it's going to compete for the food, it's probably going to uh, take up the food before the seahorses get a chance to eat anything. So two great points on some stuff to look at there. Now with coral, what type of, is there certain types of coral that we can or can't put in there? Now I bring this up for two different reasons. You know, first of all, a lot of us might look at, you know, soft corals or something like that to put in there. But there's other restrictions, um, such as lighting restrictions, because seahorses have a certain needing for light or lack thereof. Uh, Can you speak to that? Sure. Yeah, you you most certainly do not need brilliant lighting for seahorses. While there are a few folks who do keep them under metal halide, I recommend against doing so. If you watch them in their natural habitat, they actually spend a lot of time shading themselves, uh, either in the grasses or by use of the, just the covering of macroalgae on them themselves. You want to keep that in mind. If you're not going to use metal halide, well, then you're going to have a problem growing stony corals. Uh, not to mention that most stony corals uh, are very, very dangerous to seahorses and that when they try to hitch to them, they'll get stung. Yep, that was um, the next question I had as well. Okay, lighting, you know, okay, so we can't keep real strong lighting, or if we do decide to keep real strong lighting, we have to make sure that we provide adequate cover from the light or sheltered cave type of areas where they can hide. But if we did happen to put, um, say, a, an acro in there, what would happen if the, if he try, you know, if you, one of your seahorses tried to hitch to that? There, there seems to be a problem there too. Yeah, there are some folks who have tried uh, using Montipora digitata, and they say that their seahorses seem to be unaffected by it. But for the most part, stony corals are stinging corals, and they will affect seahorses. And seahorses are going to hitch. That's what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, soft corals, on the other hand, there are some folks who have had great success with soft corals in their seahorse tanks. I put in some Xenia in mine uh, for I'm no thinking, other reason. Yeah, Xenia, leather, stuff like that. Yeah, zinnia, leathers, uh, zoanthids, uh, mm-hmm. mushrooms. Um, I'm trying, I, I've got zoanthid polyps that are on my rocks that are starting to grow in there, and I'm going to let them grow. There's a couple of red mushrooms that have come up from, uh, you know, my live rock and use in other tanks, and they're growing fine. Recordia, zinnia, and stuff like that. Well, actually, recordia, you, you want to you start looking there at the threshold they too can can pack a sting yep that's true Um, and some of them can actually grab for food too so that might actually present an issue too absolutely i'm sure you've seen the pictures of the uh, elephant ears and uh, (laughs) damsels uh, being consumed by them you want to keep that in mind as well good point 
Okay, and just to kind of recap that, basically what you know, we want to stay away from fish that are going to be aggressive towards the seahorses directly. We want to stay away from fish that are going to be aggressive eaters that are going to uh, actually outcompete uh, the seahorses for food. Uh, some good options might be some small uh, gobies uh, or pipefish. And then on the other hand, for the coral, uh, some of the things that we want to stay away from is a lot of the the stony coral, um, both in the category or the you know the hobby categories of LPS and SPS. Um, but stony coral overall, a lot of them will sting in one way. Some of them are have a powerful sting. Some of them don't. A lot of them will actually reach out and grab the food. So you want to kind of stay away from those. Uh, some of the more um, docile mushrooms would be something that you could look at, the little red or green mushrooms, but you want to stay away from the larger uh, mushrooms, the recordias maybe, uh, and the yumas and stuff like that. Anything else that you want to add to that? Sure. No, the only other thing that uh, a lot of folks ask is what about clams? And, uh, uh, yeah, in I my think about that. Yeah, in my honest opinion, uh, again, you run into an issue where you need to provide the proper yep, lighting for yep, a clam. Lighting. And, uh, you know, last but not least, clams are built with a, a, a hinge and a reflex mechanism, whereas a seahorse tail could get stuck in a clam shell and yep. be crushed, and, uh, you know, that would be devastating. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that kind of covers the, the co-inhabitants type stuff, the fishing coral that you can put in there. Let's move on to kind of the last, you know, one of the, the last sections that we need to talk about. We've kind of talked about the tank, the filtration what you can put in there. Now, when it comes to feeding your seahorses, there's a couple very specific things that we need to look at. Now, one of the things that you mentioned earlier is that seahorses do not have an actual stomach, uh, and it's more uh, akin to something like one long intestine. The food just kind of passes right down the pipe. It'll get digested as much as it can before it you know, comes out the other end. Um, but there are some important things with the amount of times that you have to feed feed them in a day, and because of that, there are certain types of food and enrichments that need to be done. Um, so let's first off, let's talk about uh, the frozen food, live food type situation where, you know, some need frozen food or, or some need live food. How does that play in? Well, if you were lucky enough to be able to acquire um, tank-raised seahorses, chances are that they're already eating frozen foods. Most folks who raise the seahorses will not let them go to the ultimate destination until they are doing so. Um, now, there's an important point there, though. If they are on frozen foods, uh, especially for us community tank uh, or reef tank keepers, where we will often feed live food to our fish as a special treat. Now, that's a no-no with um, frozen food-fed seahorses, correct? For the most part, correct. I mean, there's going to be some amount of actual predation in the tank for myocid shrimp and whatnot mm -hmm. but if you've got a, a tank raised seahorse that's eating frozen food you don't want to reintroduce live food on a regular basis simple, right right exactly for the simple reason that they will become a food snot and they'll turn down the frozen food i mean i would if yeah. you gave me you know you gave me a fresh meal versus something out of a can i'll, I'll, I'll take a fresh meal thank you so right, right. you want you, a can of spaghettios really, or you want a, a barbecued uh ribs <laughs> Exactly. And what, what you're doing is you're effectively undoing what took months for the breeder to do, and that's to get them to be trained on frozen food. And that's something you know dearly, isn't it? <laughs> yes, I've had that battle with my fry right now. Uh, <laughs> just because of my, my, my work schedule, there are yep. days when I've not been able to feed them properly, and they, they just won't take anything else but the, the baby brine shrimp once again. Yeah. Now, uh, in your experience, when we're when when we're talking about uh, okay, let's say I've got a pair of of seahorses. They are they have been taking frozen food. Fine. When, when I see the thing, or when it's said that you don't want to feed uh, live food at all, uh, the one thing you mentioned is they do feed on live food in pods or, or mice and shrimp. In, in you know that's living in the macroalgae or whatnot. Uh, but is there times when, I mean, is it acceptable to on occasion feed an established pair of seahorses baby brine shrimp or anything like that? Is there, is, I guess it's more important, is there any reason to do it? I mean, is this something we should look at or just avoid altogether? If you've got tank-raised fish, I strongly urge you to avoid it altogether. There's other ways of ensuring that they're getting the proper nutrition. Um, Which I, is, yeah, the next thing that we're going to talk about really is is the food enrichments. To the frozen foods or the flake food. Correct, and, and that's what it's all about. I mean, it, it, you can you can do the best you can to provide the proper nutrition. 
if you have a seahorse that's gone back over to live food after taking frozen, you've now become a slave to the fish, and you've got to provide live food constantly for the rest of its life. And not only is that a pain in the butt, but it's extremely expensive, too. Extremely expensive. It can be a pain in the butt. Sometimes it can be downright impossible. Yeah. I mean, there are some folks who just can't get a hold of good live foods. Mm -hmm. Now, when we're talking about enrichments for your frozen foods or your dry foods, your prepared foods, your non-live food, is enrichment necessary? Is it required? Is it an option? Um, how often should, should you enrich the food that you feed them? I say it's necessary. Uh, we, we can't imagine that we understand everything, everything right. that a seahorse is eating in the wild to, to make that well-balanced diet. And if we are subjected to feeding the fish a frozen myosid with a treat of frozen brine shrimp from time to time, you can't get 100% of what they need. So I personally use some of the enrichment formulas, and most of the folks that I speak with do the same. Um, do you enrich the food every time you feed them, or is it like a, just a one feeding a day is enriched, or, or what have you? I do one feeding a day enriched, and for the most part, it's just because of my time and availability oh. in the morning. Right, right. Um, but yeah, they, they get one, one, feed, one feeding in the morning that's not enriched, and one in the evening that is. Now, so to that point, um, is that normal that you'll feed twice a day? Uh, is that normal? Because I think I've read somewhere that you, you need at least three times a day or whatever. Is this one of those species-specific things, or is it learn your, learn your pets and, and, and understand what they need? It's more a matter of, of understanding your pets. I, okay. I was feeding three times a day when I first acquired my, my first pair, and I was overfeeding them, and you could tell. You can tell with seahorses because they'll pass completely solid myosid shrimp. Uh-huh. And they'll they'll just continue taking it. And and again, with any with any marine tank, when you're you're getting into overfeeding, you're going to cause some major uh, tank pollution issues and algae problems and stuff like that. So it's probably very important to you know make sure that your your current is shut down in your tank when you drop the food in there. Um, this is probably one of those where you don't want to drop a lot of food in there, just enough for them to eat. But you're going to want to do it uh, depending on you know again get to know your fish. But you're going to probably want to do it a couple times a day, at least twice, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, is there anything else that you want to mention on uh, feeding, uh, either live food, frozen foods, anything like that? Well, just just remember that you know seahorses were built to actually graze. They they do eat and they eat constantly over the day, uh, the period of a day, and they're not used to eating meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner like you and I. Right. So the best way to feed them is in small quantities, um, you know, twice, three times a day. Use the any kind of enrichment or additive that you can um, that could provide the you know the omega acids the uh, celcon zocon things like that are great make sure that what you're putting in there is, is trusted proven there's a lot of folks out there with products that are zero phosphate zero nitrate that's always a bonus mm -hmm. so make sure you're feeding them feeding them right um, and if you can't do so uh, you might want to rethink getting seahorses altogether. <laughs> yeah, and they, you know, it's one of those things that I think almost everybody would like to have, but, um, and unfortunately, there's probably a lot of failures in it just due to a lack of research, which is why I thought that this, this show idea would be a great idea uh, to kind of give everybody an introduction to the seahorses and stuff like that that they need. So just kind of recapping the food issue, um, you want to keep them on frozen foods if they take, uh, you know, as long as they're taking frozen foods. Regarding feeding live food, you know, this is one of those things where don't get a seahorse that's, that only eats live food. Make sure you get something that takes frozen foods. Uh, when you do feed your frozen foods, make sure that you do um, enrichments, you know, as you can at least once a day, as Dave mentioned, uh, with, you know, various proven uh, food enrichments. Now, the one last thing that I wanted to mention about here, which we've kind of talked about a couple at a couple points, but uh, they do graze all the time, and they're going to go through the macroalgae. Uh, so, you know, there's probably something important there that we should talk about, about making sure that you have a good pod uh, population and or replenishment method to replenish those pods as they're consumed. Do you want to touch on that? Sure. Uh, you do want to have an established <laughs> tank for, you know, any of your seahorses, um, pipefish, uh, that even more particularly, they, they tend to not take the frozen foods and want the live foods. So you, you want to make sure that you have 
your rocks set up such that you might have some rubble piles. I call them pod piles. Yep. Uh, the macroalgae itself will help, um, you know, for the reproduction of, of the pods. Um, I use a refugium. I'm doing the 75-gallon sump for no other reason except to increase the water volume and provide a real, real, you know, supporting refugium. Um, yeah, it's not only for, for food. I mean, it's literally entertainment. You, you yep. can watch them stock these things, and they, they, they keep themselves busy. <laughs> and again, the pods and myosid are also cleaning up nutrients in the tank and, and, and helping in the cycle of the tank. Excellent. Now, um, I know we're, we're kind of pushing a little bit on time, so I want to kind of get this section wrapped up a little bit. The one other question that I had, which um, I just realized that we didn't mention, uh, when you're setting up your tank, uh, needless to say, you've got to go through your normal marine marine fish tank cycle period. Now, once your cycle is over, especially for the reasons of building a pod population or anything like that, are seahorses something that you can add when your cycle's finished, or are they something that once your tank is finished cycling, you want to get your live rock, you know, make sure you got your live rock in there, get your your uh, pod piles, your little piles of, of reef rock rubble in there, get your macroalgae in there, and wait, or, you know, is this something that you've got to wait even longer to actually get your seahorses in there? I, I actually allow a tank to mature, and that's, you know, a stage well beyond cycle. You do want to make sure that when you look into your tank that you see a healthy population of pods, myosid. You want to make sure that your sand bed's working properly. Mm -hmm. You have a low-flow, high-nutrient tank, so you want to make sure that you've got yourself one biological system that's ready to run and ready to accept the, the fish. Now, what is the average time on this? I mean, tank maturity is kind of one of those those goofy words where nobody really understands mature tanks. So, um, you know, basically my interpretation of this, you know, like you mentioned, make sure your cycle's complete. Make sure that you have a good pod population. Uh, once you're starting to meet these requirements, um, and my, my guess, again, I haven't, you know, prepped a tank for seahorses or anything, but, you know, being that your cycle is four to six weeks, um, it, from what it sounds like is you're probably talking, you know, eight to 12 weeks before you can actually get seahorses in there. Is that, is that accurate? Or is for it my tank, that, No, for my tank, that's, that's right. That's right on. I, it was, for me, it was 10 weeks mm -hmm. and it's hard. You can't put a time on this kind of thing. Right. Um, I was able to use a lot of live sand and a lot of live rock from established tanks. That immediately reduced that time for yes. me. But you want to see the healthy signs of a mature tank. You want to see some small trails in your sand beds. You want to see the numbers of pods to the point where they're noticeable on the glass and on the rocks. You want to see macroalgae that might be taking hold with their holdfasts. You want to see a mature tank. Uh, excellent. And, you know, I think that pretty much covers that. Now, to kind of wrap up this, and, you know, we, we've talked about the tank setup, uh, tank partners as far as cleanup crew, filtration, other types of fish and stuff like that you can put in there. Uh, we pretty much, you know, went over feeding, uh, different types of feeding, enrichment, all that type of stuff. So let's kind of wrap up this topic. And uh, what I'd like to do is move on at this point. Um, and I'm actually going to keep Dave with me as we go over um, uh, uh, the pretty much the remaining segments of the show. Uh, the last thing that we are going to talk about with this, you know, with the official topic is a couple of reference sites. Uh, Dave, you had a, a couple sites that um, you marked as good resources for doing seahorse research. You want to tell me real quickly about those two? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Seahorse.org, I'd be nowhere without them. I browsed their forums and learned a lot there for a year or more before I even attempted to keep seahorses. So check them out at Seahorse.org. Um, I'm also a fan of Bob Fenner and all his friends at Wet Web Media, so check them out. Uh, you can search specifically by seahorses, pipefish. Um, they're just a wealth of information. So those two are no-brainers. I'd recommend them right away. Yep, and of course, you know, if you've got questions, again, seahorses.org is a site that's devoted to seahorses. Um, but if you are a Talking Reef you know, listener, as you are because you're listening to this, and you are registered on the forums, you know, we did set up, a, uh, I'm almost sure that I put it in there, uh, a seahorse uh, section in the forum. So if you've got some questions, uh, you know, post the questions in there. Uh, Dave or a couple, there's actually a handful of people, uh, forum members now that are seahorse keepers. Uh, so someone will get in there and answer the question. And because we do run a, you know, a very honest policy in there, if it's something that, you know, these people just don't have the answer to, this is probably one of the sites that uh, they'll send you off to. So moving on. Um, 
you know, we're going to do the tip of the week. And like I said, I'm going to keep Dave around for that because uh, what I've did, what I've done is I've come up with a tip of the week uh, that's going to stay with the seahorse theme since we're doing the seahorse show. Uh, so for this tip of the week, um, what I'm going to have Dave do is talk to us real quickly about uh, how you actually select a healthy seahorse when you're going to the fish store or you're going to a, a hobbyist that's breeding them. When you actually go into there and you're looking at them, uh, Dave, can you tell me a little bit about things to look for uh, when determining that it's healthy and things to look for to determine that it's not healthy? Sure. Again, I'd like to start off by saying that, you know, if available, please choose tank race seahorses. So with that in mind, if you're at your local fish store, look at the specimens in the tank. If there are large fish in there, they're probably not tank raised. I mean, it's not cheap to raise seahorses to adulthood. So if they're not soon as po- if they're not sold as soon as possible when they're eating frozen fish, it starts to cost the the breeder a lot more money. So a large specimen is most likely wild caught. Uh, also keep in mind that what you, you get what you pay for. So if you're looking at a seahorse in a tank and it says $25, $30, there's a good chance that that is also a wild-caught fish. Um, you want to expect to pay somewhere between $50 and $100 uh, for a tank-raised seahorse, depending on your location and availability. Also try to keep away from seahorses that can't properly be identified. If you go into the local fish store and they have a tank-raised fish, they most certainly know where they got that fish from, and they can trace the origins and, and the species for you. Right, and they should be they able want... to tell you exactly what kind of seahorse it is. Absolutely. If you see something that's labeled black seahorse or yellow seahorse, ask. And if they can't tell you what it is and give you a proper ID, it's probably a wild-caught seahorse. Now, is there any signs of uh, disease or infection that might be common that you might want to look for on the head or the tail or anything like that? Sure. Yeah, you do want to look for any indications of injury or illness. Um, seahorses are scaleless fish, so if you see any compromise in their skin, sometimes you'll see snout rot. It's uh, white patches in and around the mouth area. Uh, you might see tail rot, but basically, if you don't, if you see something that just doesn't look right, uh, it's best to leave the store without that fish. So mostly you know, the common sense items. Correct. Correct. You know, any any obvious injury. Uh, don't try to rescue seahorses in, in the fish store. Um, just with any other fish, if you notice that it's not you know, properly cared for, um, the worst thing you can do is try and rescue them from the local fish store. Now, our, this is one thing I don't know about. Are seahorses, can they get ick, saltwater ick? Uh, seahorses uh, are susceptible to a lot of different illnesses. Um, you know, most often they, they, they deal with bacterial infections. Um, they can get a gas bubble disease. Uh-huh. Um, you don't hear a whole lot of people screaming and yelling about ick in their seahorse tanks. but uh, That's probably something that's possible. Uh, it, it's probably possible. Okay. So, again, when you're going in and you're, you're looking for your seahorse, make sure you know where it came from. Make sure that it's, it looks healthy um, and stuff like that. Now, one of the common rules with uh, buying regular fish is that you always ask to, you know, have them fed, number one, and you always look to see how active they are. Now, are seahorses one that, uh, in the local fish store, that if you were to drop some food in there, they would readily eat? Is that a good test? They should. Okay. Yeah, they should. And, and you want to make sure that you don't leave with a seahorse that you're not sure that eats frozen foods. So, yeah, ask if you can feed them some frozen mice and shrimp. And you uh, should see them take that right away. It, absolutely. They should, they should make an effort to get toward the food and, and take the food. Again, seahorses graze all day long in the wild. They shouldn't turn up a meal if it comes their way. Excellent. Okay. Well, I think that kind of covers our extended tip. Uh, normally, the tips are a lot shorter than that, but uh, we've got just so much information to, to get out on this show. Uh, at this point, what we're going to do is move on to the question and answer section. Now, uh, we announced this show uh, a couple weeks back that we were going to do this. Uh, we did get a series of questions in the forums. We set up a form specifically for this. Uh, now that this we had the show, what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'll close that topic down. Any further questions can be you know routed over to uh, the Seahorse form that's set up there. Uh, but that that specific thread on that will be closed down. Uh, but what I did is I went through that, and there was a lot of people that had a lot of uh, most of them were basic questions. And I tried to wrap most of those basic questions into the topic, and I think we nailed just about every single one of them. Now, 
Uh, just you know, uh, to extend on that, um, some of the things which I actually think we did end up covering, but I'm going to go ahead and bring these up anyways, and we can at least recap them. Uh, the first one comes was actually two people asked the same question. Uh, Christy, uh, also known as Reef Baby, uh, and Jim asked, "What are the ecological impacts or collection impacts? In other words, is there you know are these endangered species um, collecting them from the wild? Is that you know something that we?" really should, you know, really stay away from due to uh, them being endangered species or whatever. Now, I think we've mostly covered that, but again, if you want to touch on that real quick. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, seahorses uh, by far are, are, you know, in trouble. Uh, it's estimated that there are over 24 million that are taken out, just dried and sold for medicinal purposes in China alone. Uh, there are hundreds of thousands that are removed from the wild for the uh, aquarium uh, hobbyists so you know there is an impact on removing them uh, from from their their natural environment uh, fisheries catch them as byproducts so that itself reduces the numbers um, they are protected and uh, we should be trying to obtain wild um, yeah we should be trying <laughs> to obtain tank rays whenever possible and again, that goes with anything. When you've got coral, you've got fish. Now, a lot of marine fish can't be captive bred, so um, you know that's an issue all in of itself. But whenever you have the option for captive bred or aquacultured coral or anything like that, you should always opt for that because it, it doesn't impact the natural uh, ecosystem of these. So moving on, um, the next question comes from uh, Jeep John. Uh, and what he asked was, are these active pets? Uh, and I think what he was referring to here is if I had a tank with three or four seahorses in it, am I gonna, are they going to be moving around all the time or am I going to be staring at uh, almost statue-looking fish that are just hitched to you know branches? Well, that, that's actually a good question. Most people think of them as being almost a stationary fish, and they're so not. If you look at you know just a few of the hundred blurry images that I've posted on various websites, you realize that my fish just don't sit still. Um, you know, they, they move, but if, if you're looking for constant, fast-paced motion, like you're used to seeing in a reef tank, well, they're then not you might tanks. Need... No, right, you might stick to a reef tank with a tang or a wrasse that's darting in and around. Yep. Um, you know, seahorses aren't that active, but again, they're beautiful, they're colorful, they do move. And the last question that we pulled out of the forums was from Ghost Bear 29 and uh, this was something that we've pretty much, I think, covered, but uh, what, this, what this person was interested in was pricing and availability. And I know you mentioned the price, but we can kind of go over that again. What's, what's the, if I were to go out to a fish store, um, what should I expect to pay for a good, healthy, uh, tank-raised seahorse? And um, you know, what's the availability on them? Should I be able to find them in pretty much anywhere? Well, uh, they're, they're becoming more and more available because we are getting more successful in breeding them. Uh, there are some folks like uh, ORA, uh, Ocean Rider. I mean, they, they are having great success with their programs. Uh, but, you know, some local hobbyists are actively breeding and having success. So uh, they are available. Um, you can, from time to time, find them, um, you know, for sale in fish stores. You, t you, you tend not to find them in the chain type or franchise stores right. because it, it takes, you know, they're, they're very sensitive and it takes some knowledge to keep them, keep them alive. So, um, but the smaller uh, shops with staffed by experienced personnel, you, you may find them there. Um, I found them in the New England area between, you know, $50 to $100 uh, a seahorse. Uh, and again, that depends on, on, the store and, and what they have for, for retail size and what they can carry as stock. Um, if you find other specialties, there are some orange um, red eye that are out in New England right now that they're getting $200 of fish for. Uh, but on an average, you would expect to pay somewhere between $50 and $100 for a fish. Okay, well, I think that pretty much covers pricing and availability. Now, uh, like I said, I did my best to go through and make sure that all the questions from this that forum that we set up in there did get answered. Uh, if there's any further questions about the stuff that we did cover or the stuff that we didn't cover, make sure you head over to the TalkingReef.com forums and check out the Seahorse forum and ask any and all questions there. Now, something else that uh, me and Dave have been talking about is doing uh, follow-up shows to this. Now, if there's enough questions that weren't answered in this show that come up, 
uh, we might look at the the chance of doing just a, a, a follow-up segment and or show. Uh, probably won't be a full show, but it really depends on how many questions come up. But if there's a lot of people that have a lot of questions that we didn't answer, uh, maybe we can do a follow-up segment with Dave to kind of answer those. And the second thing is that we are interested in, as long as the interest is out in the community, uh, one of the things we've been talking about is doing a uh, like a seahorse part two section where we'll actually get more into seahorse breeding, uh, sexing them, um, the larval you know care, grow out tanks, creasel systems, stuff like that. So there's a lot of information. I think we really, I think we did a good job uh, covering the good information, um, but I'm sure we we barely scratched the surface with with you know the all the other stuff that's out there. Uh, so. At this point, um, Dave, is there anything else that you wanted to kind of add to any, that or anything else that we've talked about? No, I, I do agree that, uh, you know, the topic of seahorses and, and as you discussed, species could go on forever and ever. So I'm willing to answer any and all questions that uh, might be posted my way. Feel free to contact me. And as always, uh, if I can't find the answer for you immediately, I'll get back to you and I'll get the answer from somebody who can get the information. Excellent. Now, again, just to recap, um, there's a lot of times when we weren't specific. Items that were discussed in this show um, were based off of the experience of Dave and the people that he's worked with and learned from from uh, various different places. Uh, you know, none of this, you know, we're not preaching any of this is gospel. Uh, this is based on experience. Um, and also, it's based on Dave's experience with the Hippocampus uh, redi species of seahorses. So when we're talking about pricing, availability, and you know all this different types of stuff, uh, it might vary when you're talking about different species. So this is what we're talking about and, again, what it's based off of. Uh, so with that said, um, you know, Dave, if you have nothing else, then uh, I think we will uh, wrap this up, this up and we'll go into the community update and close the show out. Anything else from you? Nope. Very good. Thank you so much again for having me on. Excellent. Great. Well, I will talk to you uh, later. And once again, I wanted to give special thanks to Dave uh, for taking the time to come on the show and give all of our listeners and me uh, a great introduction to seahorses, seahorse tanks, and everything that we've discussed in there. So, Dave, thank you again for doing that. Uh, I want to wrap up the show with a quick community update. Uh, don't forget listener call-ins. Uh, if you've got any questions, introductions, comments, or anything like that, feel free to call those into the voicemail line, uh, area code 586-486-3357. I just wanted to say real quick that I have got a few emails and a few voicemails that I haven't been able to get on the show just because, uh, as you can see, this show was filled with content. We didn't really have the room in there. The next show is going to be also filled. Uh, so, but getting once we get into the uh, more of the March shows uh, next month, they will definitely be getting in there, and the questions will get answered, and everything will get played on there. That I promise. Uh, so again, uh, if you have any additional questions, comments, uh, feel free to call those in. Uh, last but not least, I just wanted to let everybody know that the contest is going real well. Uh, we've got uh, a nice amount of entries. I, I believe we're up to about five or six or seven or so. I'm not really sure at this point, but I know that they keep rolling in. So, again, make sure that you take a minute, go over to the TalkingReef.com website, uh, go to the forums, register, and you'll see the Talking Reef contest for, uh, little form in there, and you can go ahead and post your entry in there. So that's going to go ahead and wrap up the show for tonight. Uh, so I wanted to thank everybody for sticking with us and have a good one.